Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Bucky Buckstabber is the founder and executive director of the Fly Fishing Collaborative, an organization that raises money to provide sustainable aquaponics farms for communities that are at a high risk of sex trafficking. I had many questions about how the operation works, so I sat down with Bucky in Oregon to ask him exactly what the Fly Fishing Collaborative does. Bucky. Yes. I would like to say that I was scheduled to be here, um, let's see, yesterday. <laughs> and I've been waiting here since yesterday, patiently. I see that you're sitting here in a puddle of, no, I'm just kidding. But like, I cannot thank you enough for being so accommodating. I've learned quickly not to put more than one episode in a day. It was fine when I was single, but with a baby, it changes everything. Yeah, and I've learned quickly just to give new parents a lot of slack <laughs> because... I'm a parent myself, and I understand that sometimes it's a rodeo. Well, you have four children. Yes. That is incredible. I thought, and this is my own fault, but I just assumed that you were, I don't know, like in your 20s and kind of, you know, a new up-and-comer in the industry, and then I started looking into you, and I went, oh, that's why you need to actually look into somebody without just assuming by a photo you've seen on social media that you know anything about Sure. So are you saying I look like I'm in my 20s? I really take that as a compliment. Well, you look like you're in your 30s. I am in your 30s. Now that we're a little closer. (laughs) But you have four kids. Yes. So you're busy. Yeah, I'm busy. I've got four kids, two teenagers, uh, a 17-year-old daughter, and then a 15-year-old son, 9-year-old son, and 7-year-old son. Wow. And what do you do for work? 
Oh, I do fly fishing collaborative full time. Okay, that's what yeah, I was wondering. That's my gig. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So for work, I travel around the world and build aquaponics farms for safe homes and also for impoverished villages that are mostly villages that are selling kids because of a lack of resource. So we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about of that. Of course. That's I'm actually sure that's, why I'm, yeah, <laughs> you, you picked it. It's why I'm here. I assumed. <laughs> yeah. Before we get into the story of the collaborative, let's, did you have a history or a background or education in doing this sort of work? That's a great question, and it would be easy to assume that, oh, maybe he has some personal experience in the trafficking industry, or maybe he's worked with you know, kids that have been affected by sex trafficking, but actually, no. I mean, I have, I have done a lot of work for foster kids, and that's really... So a handful of years ago, um, I ran and directed camps for abused and neglected foster kids all around the Portland area, and that's when I really started to learn more about our local issues with the sex trade and the vulnerability of all of these kids of getting caught in the industry. But prior to that, I really didn't have a whole lot of knowledge about sex trafficking until I started the Fly Fishing Collaborative. And you didn't have any knowledge on fish farming either? I did not. So this is a was a completely blank slate for you? Yes. Okay, let's get into it then, if you don't mind. Not at all. Now, what did you do for work? What was yeah. your trade? Yeah, so my, I was a children's director, so I would set up uh, major development children's programs for large churches in the Portland area. I worked with a network of churches. Okay. So when I read that you have a pastoral background, does that mean that you were a pastor? I was a pastor and a kid's pastor, namely, and I have always loved children. Okay. So it's all starting to kind of piece together now. So how did you first hear about sex trafficking apart from watching Liam Neeson movies? Well, when I was working in the foster care system, so I would direct camps for foster kids and I would learn, you know, talking to caseworkers, social workers that we were working with quite a bit. And I've got a lot of friends that are just kind of in the justice community, people that are, you know, doing work overseas, um, setting up orphanages or creating vocational job training centers overseas. And it's just through and then just through kind of some church network contacts, people doing justice work, I've always admired, but never thought that I would be one that would do it myself. Fair enough. Yeah. And here you are. And then my life radically changed a handful of years ago with the whole founding of the Fly Fishing Collaborative. So I just, I've got many questions for you about sex trafficking, if that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Or human trafficking. I'm assuming that it happens in America. It does. So how does that happen? I mean, I am a victim of movies. I learn, I've only ever heard of it, learned of it, seen it, witnessed it on movies. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me about the reality of what it is and how it happens, where it happens? Yeah. I mean, sex trafficking is, um, it's a global industry and believe it or not, it's actually the second largest crime industry in the world outside of drugs, generating billions of dollars annually. So it's definitely a major global epidemic, if you want to call it that. I really believe it's the worst human rights tragedy that we're experiencing in our day right now. It's horrific. It happens locally. It happens internationally. Now, Fly Fishing Collaborative, our organization, we really focus mainly on the international issues of sex trafficking because of the opportunities that our aquaponics farms are providing because so many kids are getting sold internationally because of, internationally because of lack of resource. So how it works internationally is a little different than how it works domestically in the States, but... There's also a lot of carryover in that traffickers are finding vulnerable children and vulnerable parents 
and they're taking advantage of them for their own gain. So they're not kidnapping them. And that happens a lot. It happens a lot in internationally. We're working in some villages in Nepal where kids are literally being kidnapped and they're disappearing in some of these remote villages because my stomach's I'm like actually getting sick, especially as a mom now and making my stomach upset because they're taken and used for people have sex. They basically get drugged up and they're used for sex and they get taken to the brothels. Um, and they basically are slaves in the brothels and they disappear. Sometimes they cross borders because there's more control when there's language barriers. And so, you know, maybe some girls from Thailand will be taken to Cambodia or maybe some girls from Nepal will be taken to India just to, you know, create more barriers and control mechanisms. From what I've read about your organization, which we haven't touched on yet, so of course my listener is going to be a little lost. I promise you I'll bring everyone back on track. I'm assuming you can't do much to help people who are being kidnapped. No, what we do is um, we do some preventative work to really lower the likelihood to minimize the risk of kids that are being sold. So talk to me about that kids being sold, why that happens, how it happens, and how you're helping. So I'll break it down. Why does that happen? Why are they sold? Obviously to make money. Yeah, I mean, well, because there's a lot of money in the sex industry. It's a billion-dollar industry, and... Kids are getting sold because there's a demand, unfortunately, and I hate to say that. And this is the hard stuff to talk about mm-hmm. because these are the dark parts of humanity, right. and we like to ignore them. I do not like to ignore them. But well, it's I easier see, it to ignore easier. them. And, and the sex trade thrives in secrecy. It's an underground industry, and it's easy to turn an eye pretend that it's not there. And it's overwhelming when we do face something like that. And I think that's one of the big hurdles that I had to overcome when I started the Fly Fishing Collaborative. I had to get over a couple of different aspects of fear. One of them is I could easily not approach something because I'm afraid of what it would demand of me. Because when we engage in some of these relationships with these girls in the homes or with the homes, the safe homes themselves or the villages, it takes a lot out of you. And it's easy to turn away from something that's going to make a great sacrifice in your life. And we do sacrifice. I mean, we do a lot outside of our comfort zones. Yeah. So I had to, I had to get over the fear of what it would demand of me if I were to face this head on. Does it make you look at your children different? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So without further ado, what is the Fly Fishing Collaborative? Yeah. So the Fly Fishing Collaborative, it really started just with my personal desire to funnel my passion for fly fishing because I've always been a fly fisherman. I love fly fishing, but I wanted to funnel that passion for something much bigger than just me. And I do have some abuse and neglect in my background. And I can't ever claim that I can relate to the children that we're working with because the amount of trauma and abuse that they've experienced doesn't pale in comparison to what I have. But but I was an abandoned child. And from par- like your parents? And I grew up in a dysfunctional home. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My dad abandoned me. My parents were dysfunctional. They were products of the 60s. And there are some good products of the 60s and there are not so good products of the 60s. There are not so good products of the 60s. Okay. Um, my upbringing was very wild. Were you brought up in foster home? In foster um, care? I would have if I didn't live with my grandparents for five years. Okay. Yeah. My dad bailed when I was young and... My mom it took her a long time to get back on her feet from a lot of drug and alcohol recovery and a wild lifestyle. And then why yeah. not? Why not create 
a campaign or a foundation to help with abandoned kids in the States. Why trafficking? What brought you there? Yeah. So what brought me there was um, a few different things. So let me go back to where I kind of started with the Fly Fishing Collaborative. There was a long time growing up where the rivers really became kind of a therapeutic, safe place for me. So when my family was super hyper dysfunctional and, and my grandparents lived on the river down in the Rogue River in Grants Pass. And that's where I would like find my peace and my respite from the just absolute. And I was going through trauma at the time, but nothing like, you know, I, I can't claim that I understand what these kids are going through. But I was going through my own personal trauma growing up. And the river was an amazing place. And it served me very well. It was a magical place for me. And then growing up and maturing and healing, I realized that I've got to take my love for the river to the next level. And that's not just serving me, but now mobilizing and funneling this passion I have for the river to serve others and mobilizing this community that I love. I love the fly fishing community. I have so many friends in the fly fishing community and there's so many good people in the fly fishing community. It dawned on me like, holy cow, with so many people that have a shared interest and a shared passion together mobilized, they can really accomplish a lot. So really, I mean, it all started with me beginning to dream about what can I do with fly fishing and with the fly fishing community, but something deep and meaningful and important. And I really believe that all we have to do is just be who we are, do what we love to do, and that's fly fishing for me and so many people in our community, but do it for a greater purpose. And when we do that, I believe that we thrive more as the human beings that we're supposed to be. And so it's just, that was my epiphany. It's like, I want to shape every aspect of my life through that lens. Am I doing what I love to do? Am I being who I'm supposed to be? But am I not doing it just for myself? Right. Because we live in a hyper-consumeristic society. And I fight that every day. So, you know, five years ago, I just began to restructure my life to really fight that even more. So as I'm just kind of like pondering, what can I do with all these amazing people and what can we get around? And, and I wanted to do something for kids because that's my passion. And I hate seeing kids being treated, you know, unjustly. And I hate seeing kids being abused and neglected. And some friends of mine, as I'm just kind of, you know, processing and dreaming a little bit, they had learned how to do aquaponics farming. And I'm sure I would probably need to explain to the listeners what aquaponics farming is. Yes, please. (laughs) Because when I think of anything that sounds like that, I think of dirty, disgusting tanks of fish shitting on each other. Excuse me. Pardon me. Yeah. And you can say shitting. That's fine. Yeah. Like I just pictured dirt fills yeah. in third world countries. And it's, and, and that's what, and that's what people think of when they think of aquaculture is growing fish in tanks and there's an excess of waste that you just have to figure out what to do with. But with aquaponics farming, so there's aquaponics, which is, or aquaculture, which is raising fish and there's hydroponics, which is raising vegetables And then aquaponics is basically taking the best of those two concepts and merging them into one little self-enclosed ecosystem, Cool, which is called aquaponics. It's really cool. But the beautiful part about it is that all, so you've got these fish tanks and you're growing fish, whatever fish you want to grow. In our case, we grow a lot of tilapia and all the fish waste falls down to the bottom of the tanks. But aquaponics, an aquaponics system utilizes all that fish waste to feed nutrients to the plants. 
So all that poop, all that falls down to the bottom, and we build grow beds around the fish tanks in gravel and someone kind of deep water grow beds and floating rafts where the plants kind of float on top of the on top of the water. And all the waste falls down into the grow beds, and there's little microbes that live in the grow beds that convert that water and turn the ammonia from the fish waste into nitrates that feed the plants. The plants grow like crazy, and then that water gets pumped back into the fish tanks, and so it's a closed-loop system, so it recycles all the same water. Wow. It's beautiful. Why do all the fish farms not do that? Well, it's it's really catching on in the farming industry now. It is, okay. Yeah, yep. and I believe it's going to be the new way of farming because and- it's totally organic. It doesn't use, it doesn't waste anything. You have a minimal water usage and you don't even need dirt. And you've got a constant, so you don't get your nutrients from soil. You've got a constant flow of nutrients from the fish. And it's enclosed. This is not in, the, there's no ocean pens here. It's totally enclosed. Okay. Yeah, it's the most organic and economically viable way of farming that there is. Okay, you have my interest. It's pretty amazing. It sounds incredible. Yeah. And so when they learned how to do this, that's when the spark happened. Like, oh my gosh, these farms can be a game changer. So here I am, I'm figuring, I'm thinking, man, what can we do with this fly fishing community? I love this community so much. And when this community is rallied together, they can make serious change because they're motivated people, they're awesome people. And then my friends are starting to learn how to do this aquaponics farming. And so I just thought, well, we can, we can build these farms. We can, we can mobilize this community. And it really all happened because my wife and I were sitting and listening to this high-powered attorney that turned into a justice guy. His name's Bob Goff. He's awesome. And he's talking about all the justice projects that he does around the world as an attorney. And we're thinking, man, if this guy is an attorney and he can do rad stuff with his skill set and his passions as an attorney, what can we do with fly fishing? And then that's when my wife actually, I'm going to give her credit because yes, I founded the Fly Fishing Collaborative, but I never would have done it if she didn't turn to me one day and say, we can do fish farms. We're sitting there listening to this attorney at this conference and she put the pieces together. She's like, we can, I know you, you want to do something and you need to do something with the fly fishing community. We can, we can, we can fundraise for one of those farms that, that our friends are building. And where were your friends building this farm? They were building them in, they kind of had set themselves up to go to some orphanages in Africa and Asia and build these farms for orphanages to help them become more self-sustaining. Okay, so missionary work, really? Yeah. Okay, so it wasn't like this was a business venture of theirs? No, no, it wasn't a business. Their kids had graduated from high school and they always... and. He's my buddy, Jason and Brenda. They're um, they're just really gritty, awesome, hardworking. He's a boat fabricator and a welder by trade. And they just wanted to do something out in the field. But they're not like missionaries to go like proselytize the gospel and evangelize people in foreign countries. That's that's not their makeup. That's not who they are. It's the same as the people who go and they help build houses. Totally. It's they the just, same thing. Yeah, they want to do something with their hands. Okay, well, the first thing I thought when you said fish farming was cha-ching, I'm just thinking it's going to cost a fortune. Mm-hmm. But I read, well, I'll let you tell me, um, what did you think it was going to cost to build one of these fish farms? Oh, I had no idea. So I, I basically, when when we got the idea to like mobilize the fly fishing community around building one of these farms, I asked Jason and Brenda, my friends, who were learning how to build the farms at the time, I said, what does it cost to build one of those? And at the time, it was about $10,000. Okay. 
and that and because we're working in foreign countries where resources you can usually get for very little, you know, money, and we're building pretty big farms. And so I thought that's attainable. I can I can rally some people together. Now I had never intended on starting a nonprofit. That was not. I was very happy with my my vocation and was comfortable and life was good and easy. But I needed to do something more. At this point, did you know that whatever was that more was going to go towards trafficking? No, it, that's when it all. So I thought, man, I, you know, I'm hearing more about trafficking through kind of the foster care work that we're doing. And then um, I've got a good friend that runs an organization in Thailand that's an anti-trafficking organization. And he's got safe homes. He's got, he's, he's popping up safe homes for children that are vulnerable to trafficking for them to live in. And he cares for these kids. And we thought, man, if we can build farms for safe homes like that, those safe homes can be self-sustaining and they don't have to rely on because they're growing fish and they're growing produce. They can eat and you know the fish and produce, and they can take it to the marketplace and sell it. Right. Like, and so they don't have to rely on American money. And that's one of the hard parts about you know. And I, of course, we want to be able to support projects that are happening all around the world that are fighting major injustices. But when we just give them money and that gift is depleted, they're left back in need. So how can we do something sustainable for them? And for us, it's like aquaponics is sustainable. The old adage, right? You give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. You teach him how to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. For us, teach him how to grow a fish and you feed him for generations. So let's talk a little bit about this then because this brings me back to my initial confusion about selling children. Yeah. Because again, this is beyond the kidnapping. This is economy. So Mm -hmm. just I can't understand and I'm hoping you can help me understand how a sale of a child comes to be. Someone just says to a mom, do you want to sell your child? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And it happens various ways. So where we've seen it, so we've done work in eight countries now. Oh, can you just tell me which ones? Yeah. Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Zimbabwe, Nepal, Mexico, Belize, and Thailand. There's some very dangerous places in there. Yeah, for sure. Every different country, every different culture has its nuances. But like I said, across the board, you've got traffickers going in with their agenda, finding kids that are vulnerable and manipulating those kids or parents into being sold. So how it happens, and we've seen this a lot in Asia, in Northern Thailand, where we've done a lot of work, is that traffickers will go into villages and remote villages, impoverished villages, and they will pose as factory workers or ed- educators. And they'll say, hey, we want to come into your villages and we know that you can't take care of your children. Maybe, you know, the parents had died because of AIDS and kids are getting taken care of by various family members They find those vulnerable cases and they go in and they say, hey, we want to help you. We want to take your children and teach them how to work in a factory and educate them. And so they're totally lying to them. And so the parents or the aunts or uncles or whoever the caregivers are for their kids, they'll agree because their kids are being there. They can't feed their children. They can't care for their children. Maybe their children are getting sick or disease or whatever. And so for them, it's like, this is like our thread of hope for our kids. And so, and sometimes the traffickers will give them front money saying, here, we just want to help you. They'll take them and they'll throw them into a brothel. I, I, 
am just in shock right now. I had no idea. No, it's horrible. What's the average age? Uh, the average age in in different countries, it's usually about 13. Boys and girls? Yeah, boys and girls. There's a high demand for boys in Thailand, but the majority of trafficking victims are, are girls. This is disgusting. It is. So if you give the community a way to make a source of income, it's no longer... A situation if we can't feed our child now, maybe our child's working in the in the fish farm, or I don't know what sort of job. How yeah, many jobs come with that? But and they also and there's also cases, you know, in situations to where they legitimately do have a factory, but they're also so they're not only trafficking the girls, but they're also doing forced labor in the factory. They work 16 hours a day, and they'll do what's called debt bondage. And so they'll say, "Hey, we took you from your village, and we." transported you by boat or plane or whatever it is all the way here to this factory. And now we're putting you up in this hotel every single night and you owe us. And they give them this astronomical fee that they'll never be able to pay back. And so the only way that you can pay us back is by working, working and they work nights. How many jobs do do the fish farms offer do they give any work oh yeah it, it really depends it all that all rises and falls on management so where we've really done well is finding safe homes that are rescuing girls from the trade and so we've worked with several homes that are working in partnership with local governments they're going into these brothels on raids they're capturing these kids and oftentimes these kids can't go back to their villages because there are a lot of situations where the family members or the villagers willingly sell their kids and so i didn't even kind of paint that scenario for you but it does happen but it does happen um, anyways, we've built farms for homes that have 12 girls and we've built farms for homes that have 200 girls. When I started to think of the idea of doing it for safe homes and villages that are, you know, working against sex trafficking, it was a no brainer for me for a few reasons. One, it's the biggest crime industry in the world outside of drugs. Two, Not only is it one of the worst injustices I've ever seen, but it's one that everybody can get around. Who is going to say, no, I don't really want to support that effort? Who is going to disagree that no child should be sold? Nobody. And so it's like, that is something that I want to mobilize our community around because it's a noble and right effort that nobody would be able to push back on. It's important. It's one of the most important, you know, human right efforts in our world. So I started floating the idea by some of our guides in our community. Like, hey, what do you guys think about helping out with a fundraiser? And maybe we could do like a little auction and auction off some guided trips. And nobody didn't like the idea. I mean, everyone was like, oh my gosh, how could I not give this something like that? And, and we started doing some fun like fly tying initiatives. And so this was like it was my like deepest desire to find people that wanted to mobilize their passions around this cause. So I would talk to fly tires. Hey, let's like tie a whole bunch of flies and let's just sell them as a fundraiser. The fly tying network grew like wildfire. And so we still get flies in the mail every week from fly tires around the world that are tying flies because they know that the sale of those flies will help fund a fish farm. And where are they sold? Through our website. Okay, so you can buy everything yeah. direct online. Yeah, totally. Perfect. And then we started fun, and so and we you know designed some really fun creative products. We sell a bunch of leather fly fishing accessories, and I mean it just it really started the snowball. So we built our first farm in northern Thailand for 163 kids 
in safe homes in outside of Chiang Mai. You went there to oh, yeah. supervise? Yeah. Oh yeah. We brought a team of volunteers and it was, it was, for me, it was life changing. How long were you there for? Uh, our, our farm team kind of construction, you know, leaders were there for two months. Okay. And then I brought a team in for three weeks. That's amazing. What did it cost to build that farm? Cost about, oh gosh, this was five years ago. I believe it cost in about $10,000 in that range. Then you also yeah. have all of the flights, all of the, did were accommodations yeah. taken care of when you were there? Yeah. So people, um, they flip their own bill. So volunteers come and they pay for their own tickets awesome. and they pay for their own accommodations. And that's still how we do it. It's clean. That's excellent. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So what was, was there success when yeah, you built it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Total success. Um, Did you run into any roadblocks with the community? No, not with the community because a lot of the, so the safe homes that we've built farms, we have run into some issues in some of the countries in Africa that we worked in, not with traffickers, but just with, it's really interesting when you work in impoverished communities and you've got neighbors in that see you succeed they actually, I mean, there's there's a lot of crime, and they and they don't want to see somebody else succeed if they can't. And there's there's a lot of threat with theft and just destruction and okay. vandalism. And so we've actually had to build farms that are pretty hidden. And no government pushback. No government pushback. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Not to this point. Knock on wood. We've been right. So far, so good. So what? You yeah. go in. You build a fish farm. You've explained to me how it works. Mm-hmm. The community helps you with the labor. Mm-hmm. And then what? You literally plug it in. Everybody says woohoo, and you guys leave. And yeah, so well, there needs to be a few different components in place before we choose a project. We need to find either. uh, I mean, we're working with homes, safe homes that are rescuing kids, and we're also working with villages where they are so impoverished and they've got such a lack of resource that they are either at great risk of selling their kids or they already are selling kids. And so what we need is three components, a water source, because we've got to fill our fish tanks. And it doesn't even have to be like a constant water source because it's you know a circular system, closed loop system. So it's recirculating the same water. But we build big farms. And so our tanks, we build four or five fish tanks that are 1,500 gallons of piece. I was going to ask you that. Okay. Yeah. How many fish does each tank? manage to produce at a time? Up to, you can squeeze one pound tilapia for every gallon of water. So, I mean, we're talking a thousand fish per tank and at max capacity. the life cycle? Like how long does that go for? Three to six months till harvest. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Depending on how well you feed the fish, how happy they are. Okay. So that's yeah. water source. What's the second one? Water source, power source, because you need to pump the water back into, you know, the filtered water back into the tank. Yep. Um, so we have some small pumps that in, that aerate the system and pump the water back in. Um, and, you know, there's solar options as well. And then we need a farm manager. And this is really important. Everything rises and falls with management for us. And so if we find somebody that we can train how to run the aquaponics system and they're a part of the build process with us, and that's either a say, uh, like a house parent or a village leader, if we find somebody that really is committed to learning the farm system and utilizing that to care for the home, the kids, and take to the marketplace, then once we've got somebody to train, we'll build them a farm. So then what happens? They obviously can feed on the fish, Mm -hmm. but then they want to make money off of it, so they sell the fish. Yeah. Who do they sell to? Yeah, like street markets. Street markets. Yeah. Okay. So if some of these communities, what if a community is hidden in the village, you know, is a village hidden in the middle of the bush somewhere? 
Yeah. Does that then they're just using it for a sustainable food source. Okay. But typically the traffickers are coming into probably busier areas to come and take children. Yeah. um, (laughs) Not necessarily. They're going into some pretty remote areas as well. Okay. Yeah. So it's not always so that they can make money off of the fish. Sometimes it's no, simply so they can eat. Absolutely. Yeah. So we built and and we built a farm in Kenya for an orphanage in that case, and they're taking kids in. So they're this orphanage is set up right outside the slums in Eldoret, and the slums are horrific. I mean, they're just they're horrible. And this orphanage is doing awesome stuff. They're caring for they've got, you know, AIDS victims and trafficking victims and all sorts of, you know, kids that are orphaned and they're taking them into the orphanage. And so when we built them a farm, they're using it to feed the children, but then they're doing a feeding program in the slums. And so they're going into the slums every single day and gathering all the kids that are literally horribly malnourished and disease ridden and they've got jiggers all over their feet and and they're feeding them every day and so they're able so our farm is able to kind of help sustain some of the nourishment for that program so there's a variety of ways that they can utilize the farm but we just want to give them a sustainable food source so that we're lowering the risk of kids being sold to the sex trade so any money that is made through these ventures or in each individual farm, does it come back to you guys? Oh, Where no. does it go? So once oh, you build it, you literally leave. It is theirs. Yeah. And so all we do from that point on after we train them, leave them with training material is we provide ongoing support if they need it. How would you feel if you found out that one of the farms that you left was taking the money that they were making and putting it towards something that really conflicted with your beliefs and our beliefs in the fly fishing Yeah, community. that would totally suck. <laughs> Could you? Would you have any stance? Could you do anything about it? No, because the farm is theirs. Like we've given, we've given it to them, and so that's where the vetting out process is really important. Going to ask that's, you that? Yeah, yeah. So you know, we don't just randomly like put a finger on a map and choose a place to build a farm. We spend a lot of time interviewing. We've got an application process. We get to know the people that we're we are partnering with and we are partnering with them. And so our farm managers, we really want to stay closely connected to. And there's got to be an element of trust. Yeah. Do you personally go to all of these places? Yeah, I've I've personally go to all. There's been, I didn't go to Rwanda or Zimbabwe, but I've been to all the other farm builds with volunteer teams. Um, And we're doing a lot of work in Nepal this year. I've already been to Nepal two times this year and we'll be back there again this fall because we've got some very big ideas for Nepal. Can you talk about them yet? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, go for it. Uh, yeah. But before you do that, have any of the farms fallen yet? Like, have, have you heard of any of the projects that you've put in coming undone or being run down or being abandoned? No, none of them have been abandoned. There's been there's been a couple situations early on that um, they had some struggles with kind of their productivity because, again, it rises and falls with manager, management. And so for us, training competent managers that really understand the cops, concepts of aquaponics farming is really important. It's key. And getting them to think ahead, stagger their harvest. And you're, when you're working with people that have lived with a poverty mindset their entire lives and trying to break them out of that poverty mindset and so that they're not just expecting – a one-time gift, but you're really like helping them to plan ahead and plant seeds during the right time of harvest and stagger the harvest so you always have fish. In the- so you're teaching them some pretty 
foreign concepts, you know, and I think our training skills have definitely grown since we started five years ago as well. So there was a couple couple farms early on that they didn't do awesome. They did fine and they're growing produce, but they decided to go into aquaculture where they're still using the tanks to grow fish. And for them, fish is a huge delicacy in some of these areas. They just don't get meat. And so they're, you know, and they've kind of been dialed into some really good aquaculture experts. And so they're utilizing the farms to grow fish for the same purpose that we intended the farm to be used for, which is a sustainable livelihood, you know, a, you know, a sustainable resource for them. Um, but they're all functional. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Tell me about Nepal. Yeah, Nepal. The changes. What are you guys up to? So we um, are partnering with a couple of companies in Nepal that are like tourism companies. Um, There's one company in Kathmandu called 514. It's an amazing company. They go into these villages. A lot of these remote villages up in the Himalayans are selling kids. And a lot of them get sold into brothels in Kathmandu, or they get taken to India and get and are sold for brothels in Calcutta. So there's one company in particular, they create trekking trails up in the Himalayas specifically designed to go through these villages that are highly trafficked villages for traffickers to abduct girls from. Last spring, I was visiting one of these villages and 12 girls had gone missing that year. It was mind-blowing because I'm looking around this village, this absolute beautiful setting, and there's a little school that's a central kind of like little school where all the little remote villages and all the kids from the villages will come down and, and go to the school. And as I'm looking at the school, I'm only seeing boys come to school. And I'm only seeing boys outside in the play yard playing. And so I asked our tour guy, one of the, he grew up in one of these villages. He was taking us all around Nepal and kind of giving us some, a great cultural lesson. I said, where are all the girls? He said, well, a lot of the girls from these villages have been sold to the brothels. Sold or taken? Sold. And in this particular case, the village leader was getting rich off selling these kits. And so it was the village leader that was, and some of the, some of the children were probably taken by the village leader and sold. He sold his own girls. That, I mean, that, that is a punishable by death offense to totally, me. Totally. But what was also, and it's hard to wrap your mind around. It really is. But then, you know, as I continued to kind of peer around the villages, I did see girls, but the girls weren't in the school. The girls were out caring for their home. They were out sweeping their decks or they were cooking or they were hauling grain into their home. I'm talking girls 8, 10, 12 years old, little girls. Um, and there's, you know, there's definitely no, there's a different, definitely a difference in gender equality in some of the areas that we're working in. Mm-hmm. And so it just motivated me to really create a way, not that I want, we want to westernize these cultures, but we've got to, we've got to empower women. Well, yeah. Humanity isn't, doesn't just belong in the West, right? Totally. 
Okay, so valuing human beings for being human beings (laughs) and looking at everybody equal. So how are you doing that? What is the new thing in Nepal that you're working on? So we partnered with this tourism company. It's called 514 Nepal. They have a headquarter um, facility. It's a bed and breakfast and and cafe in Kathmandu. And we're going to build an aquaponics farm on their rooftop. And we're doing that project. St- we actually start that project this coming October. Oh, that's why you're traveling there. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So we've done a lot. So like I said before, everything rises and falls with management and saying, and just finding the opportunity and the need. And so we've done two trips to Nepal already, preliminary trips, just to meet people, to choose farm managers, to f- get an, you know a real understanding of the situation in the villages there where kids are getting abducted and sold. And what we can do to help. And so we've decided to build a training farm at that headquarters in Kathmandu. And at that training farm, we're going to bring in village leaders and we're going to teach them how to do aquaponics farming. And then we're going to help them set up farms in their villages. Oh, cool. And how much follow-up do you have with these people when you're done? Um, As much as they need. I mean, we tr- we follow up a handful of times a year. Okay. So within the organization, you said that this is now your full-time job. So you, I'm assuming that you've registered this as a non-for-profit? Yeah. Okay, so, but you are on salary? Yeah. Is your wife on salary? No. Okay, so it's just you on salary. Yeah. So how does that work? How do you keep your nose clean? I mean, it's easy to keep your nose clean. How do you keep your nose looking clean to the public? Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, we're registered 501c3. We post our financials on our website every year annually. I've got a Nazi bookkeeper that does all of our bookkeeping. Yeah, I mean, really, we just follow every IRS protocol that we're supposed to follow as a 501c nonprofit. Who else is on salary? I have a part-time admin, and then I have our farm construction managers, and that's it. And farm construction managers, they're here in the U.S.? Yeah, they're here in the U.S. So what do they yeah. do? What's a farm construction manager do? So they're the experts in aquaponics, and so I could, I would, I would never claim to be an ex- expert in aquaponics farming. I... I know enough to talk about our systems and to help troubleshoot our systems, but we're working with some of the best aquaponics developers in the world. So that one couple that we started with, I mentioned before, they actually fell in love with a village in Uganda and they moved there permanently and they're doing some vocational training stuff in this village in Uganda. And so since then, we actually have joined the Aquaponics Association, which is an international aquaponics association. And there are a couple of aquaponics experts that live in Portland that we've brought into our team and we basically contract them for each farm that we build. And so, I mean, I feel so proud to be able to say that, and they're working with some of the most you know, leading aquaponics innovators in the world. And so for us to be able to go into, like we could easily, you know, create commercial aquaponics systems for our own benefit and gain and do fine. But to be able to go into these impoverished villages with the leading experts in this way of farming and to give them a gift of what I would consider the best farm technology in the world is pretty awesome. It is awesome. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask you something personal, and I, I would ask this to anybody in a non for profit. Yeah. I've just never had the chance to ask somebody. Sure. How does a non for profit decide what the salary is of somebody who's on full time? Oh, that's a good question. Um, most not profit not for profits have a board of directors, and the board of directors are basically the you know team that is responsible for all of the fiduciary you know 
um, requirements of the organization, they set my salary. So I've got an amazing board of directors. How many people are on the board? I've got five people on the board. Okay. So you guys sit down and you say, look, this is what he's going to need to survive and be able to make this happen. That's right. Okay. Um, I have to ask now some uncomfortable questions. Sure. Talk to me about the Tom by investigative piece that he wrote. Because Tom is very smart. Mm. I've gone head to head with Tom. But sure. Tom does fantastic work and he loves to pry and he manages to get some interesting facts. I guess the thing that got me was the money from the Belize farm going to a Christian school. With you right. and your background, you were always going to get hit with criticism. Is totally. there any merit to the criticism? Talk me through the facts in that article. Yeah, I would say the only merit to that criticism is that we weren't communicating clearly enough. Um, I thought the, the criticism was way off. What, what was the criticism that you guys, that they were making money at the Belize farm and putting it towards a school? Yeah, the criticism was, yeah, and this was, you know, this is a couple of years ago now, and, and believe me, I've tried to forget about it. I thought about it. I battled with myself. I thought, do I weigh on Tom's journalism here, and do I talk to Bucky about it and make him uncomfortable when I don't want to, I want this to be fun, or do I give you the opportunity to talk about it so that anyone who's thinking about it can hear what you have to say about it today. Sure. I think his criticism was really, you know, because of my background as a pastor, where Fly Fishing Collaborative is a non-faith-based organization. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, but I wasn't sure. No, it is. It's a non-faith-based organization because really I want to rally together all people around this cause uh, I'm not working or have ever set the organization up to work with only religious institutions. We want to combat sex trafficking. Like it just if they were if we were to take a cut or a percentage or any of the profits, that would I think that's crooked in my estimation. It's like we're we exist to help, to benefit the lives of others, not ourselves. So, so in that article, when he was saying that the manager at the Belize farm was saying that some of that money goes back to, I can't remember the school. Yeah, that school. So, the, yeah. And so that particular farm, and again, this was the second farm that we ever built. We were hungry for projects. We needed experience. Um, we Now we're getting farm requests from organizations, from different entities around the world. Then we were not even known. And so we're just like, when an opportunity came to build a farm, we're on it. Okay, now does this have a link to helping with sex trafficking? And we believed that that school that we built the farm in Belize did because they've got a great program at that school to where they actually have a um, scholarship program to where they're, they're taking kids, low-income children from the villages around Belize, and they're scholarshipping them so they can intermingle with the educated, well-to-do kids as a source of empowerment. Okay. Because where there's education, there's empowerment. And so they're setting themselves up to scholarship kids that are, have a lot going against them and we're, that are impoverished. And wherever you have impoverishment, you have a risk of sex trafficking and Belize is a highly trafficked area. And of course it's a Christian school because it's a private school. And right. even in Smithers, in British Columbia, the private schools, the the good schools are either Catholic or Christian. I went to a private school. 
Right. Okay. Yes. So that the has removing a scholarship system. Yes. And that scholarship system is taking impoverished kids from the villages and giving and giving them an opportunity for education. Okay, so that's what you heard. You didn't hear Christian school. You heard they have a program and that program is going to be it's going to follow our integrity and our beliefs and what we're doing here. That's right. Okay. Ooh. Yeah. So that would hurt. So well, you're, it, you're new in the beginning. You're doing everything that you think is right. And then you get hit with that. And then, yeah. And then it kind of went a little deeper because, you know, we're, you know, a year into the organization, we're looking for projects. We found that project. We realized that, yeah, it's helping impoverished kids in the community. It's giving them education. That's empowerment. We'll take that on. Absolutely. We had somebody, volunteer that was connected to that private school offer to pay a major portion of the cost for that farm. And again, we're just starting out. We're definitely, you know, learning how to grow our fundraising and we're still needing to fundraise. And so when that opportunity came up, like, hey, I'll sponsor this farm project. Absolutely. Um, but the criticism was we used all the money that we raised from the fly fishing community to go directly support this Christian institution. But in reality, it was majorly funded by a private donor. And for us, it was a school that's giving education opportunities to impoverished children that are at great risk of being trafficked. So what did you learn moving forward? Did you put any regular... (laughs) Communicate. Okay, got it. Let's talk damage control. Let's say number nine was taken over by a businessman. He came in and he said, listen, I'm going to buy this from you guys for $200,000. And the community says, yes, sold. He buys it and he starts putting the money towards, I don't know, drugs. How are you going to manage damage control once it's out of your hands like that if there's no real policy or, or regulation set? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, And I'm glad you asked that because we're actually working out a contract system right now for our next projects because we're planning on doing a lot of projects in Nepal. And with these projects that we're doing, there's also a lot of freedom that the farm recipients have for the farms. And so if if we're actually creating a contract for our farm recipients and the contract is essentially going to, you know, give expectations for the farm. It's going to kind of lay out requirements for continued communication, ongoing support, but also just for the the use of the farm, requirements for the use of the farm. And if they don't use the farm for what the farm is actually set up and given to them for, there's going to have to be some kind of payback process. Okay. So there's going to be some policy put in Absolutely. place. It's going to be hard legally, obviously, being in a different country. Totally. But, but at least it's something. Where do you make most of your money from? Where where do most donations come from? So three different ways. We do events like fundraising, you know, galas, banquets. Um, we have an annual banquet every year here in Portland. That is an absolute blast. Right. I mean, it is so fun. We we get Portland's kind of swankiest club, the Multnomah Athletic Club, and we pack the place out. Chris Centella, who I don't Sure, yeah, he's you know, great. Does he, he play? He he brings his band. Yeah. Um, and we raise a major, you know, a, a major part of our annual income uh, in that one event. And then you know we do other events like we had a film in the IF4 show. I saw it. Yeah, yeah. that's actually what put it on, you guys on my radar. Oh, cool. But I I've got to be honest with you. I was confused by it. I didn't mm-hmm. understand. W- 
there was so much to it that I couldn't understand what I was seeing. Uh-huh. And I thought to myself, I need to sit down and talk to him. I need longer than 10. I think it was, sure. 10, was it eight minutes? Eight or? minutes, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. I really needed to be able to, to sit with you. And now that I've sat with you, I see that there was a reason for me to be confused. And it's because it is quite in-depth. There's uh-huh. a lot of different areas to your collaborative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, there's a lot of different approaches that we're taking to fighting sex trafficking, trafficking through you know, the aquaponics farms, not just, you know, the safe homes or orphanages, but also working in the impoverished villages and empowering those communities. But through the IF4 film tour, we're able to kind of host little fundraisers all around the country where, you know, the tour would stop. We would do, uh, you know, rent a theater and, and turn that into a fundraiser for our cause, which is really fun. And what I love about our Fundraising events is they're bringing the community together, not only around a common interest, which is fly fishing, but also around a common need, which is the injustice of sex trafficking. And so it is so, so fun to watch people get inspired like, oh, man, I can actually just like donate some flies and help Mm -hmm. because I love tying flies anyways. And I can't tell you how many fly tires have told me that. They have their passion for fly tying has been rekindled because now they're tying for a purpose. Isn't it incredible? When I used to have flies for fins, because that's what I did, I so I would get flies from around the world and then sell them off, and then proceeds went to habitat restoration in the Thompson. And people still email me saying, you know, you re- it really makes me want to tie. I have a reason. I have a purpose behind the vice. Uh, but I feel so awful. I have nowhere to tell them, nowhere to put the flies. But with you now, I'll just send them your way. Yeah, send them on over. Okay, so you have events. What so are the other events, two areas? And then the other two areas are we actually kind of um, design some fly fishing products. So we have a whole line of really cool, like heirloom quality leather fly fishing accessories, like leather wallets, leather real cases, real bags, rod cases. And do you guys manufacturing those? And we partnered with a company out of Texas called Saddleback Leather Company, and they actually manufacture all of our leather goods for us. They're an amazing company. Okay. And then you obviously mark it up and you make your income that way. Okay. So that's the second one. What's the third one? And then the third one is direct support where people just get inspired by what we're doing and they say, Hey, I want to send you a monthly check or I want to sponsor a farm or, um, and those are really our three main revenue streams. So you're telling me somebody could literally donate $15,000 and have a farm built? Totally. They could go there, be part of it? Absolutely. They could follow up and go back every year? Absolutely. Yeah. I think that fly shops, maybe not fly shops, but fly companies should all sponsor one farm and then have it be part of their responsibility. Like sponsor somewhere where there's good fishing so you have an excuse to go back. Sure, yeah. And then make sure that it's not getting into crooked hands. I mean, you have nine. Let's say you have a hundred. You're never, ever, ever going to be able to stay on top of all of those with fallback. It's going to be really hard. Right. So if you had somebody or a company or a fly fish, it's a royal treatment fly shop was going to sponsor one or own one or, or, you know, not own, but Sponsor one. Yeah. Pay to put one in. That's right. Um, they could do the follow-up. So it's very interesting. There's a lot of different areas of growth for growth here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Becky, I know that I hit you with that surprising news about Tom. I'm sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Because I want you to have the opportunity to address anything else. Because uh, I know it was damaging. Is there anything that you want to say on that? Yeah. You know, as I think back at kind of some of the yeah scars from that article um, or stings or whatever. And I know that he was good intended. And I uh, wish I would have had a longer conversation with him. Um, that so, was felt a little unfair. And again, 
a lot of this as a new growing nonprofit, like we were then just taking on our second project, learning how to tell our story, communicate our you know needs and opportunities and our successes and failures. Um, because everybody has failures along with their successes. And if you don't have failures, you're not trying hard enough. They're one and the same. You cannot succeed. That's absolutely right. So for us, it was a big failure of communication. And so we've definitely learned from that. Um, and then, you know, I think one of the criticisms that really bit was the fact that our salaries were being paid from the Fly Fishing Collaborative, from the money raised through the Fly Fishing Community. But in reality, from the day we started, our salaries have been self-raised. And so we actually have people that give intentionally for our salary funds so that our fundraising events can go straight to the farms. Oh. And that's a big deal for us. It's a big deal to me. Yeah. Is there any way that you can, like, do you disclose that when you show your paperwork? Or does yeah. it all just get meshed in? No, it's it's in our financials. Um, and people give, it, it's all funneled through Fly Fishing Collaborative because the people that give towards our salary support want a tax write-off and they should get a tax write-off for their donations. And so they make their checks to Fly Fishing Collaborative or donate to Fly Fishing Collaborative. So, you know, it all goes to operations according to the IRS, but that money is specifically earmarked for our salaries. So those people are giving so that we can do what we do. Okay. So it's not like the events... So the event, yeah, the fundraising events go towards the farms. Bucky, I cannot thank you enough for taking the time for me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm really excited to see what you guys do, and I will be watching you closely. Thanks, April. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 